Thanks, Josie. Beautifully read. If you keep your Bibles open at that passage, uh, chapters 8 and 9, that'll be great. Um, nearly every other passage that comes up will come up on the screen. Um, and also in your handouts, there's an outline of the talk. If you want to take notes, that's a great place to do it. If you just want to see where we're going, uh, that might help you too. Promises, promises. We all make promises, don't we? Like this, you know, sorry I didn't make it to the dance concert, sweetheart. I'll promise I'll be there next time. Or, yeah, sorry, I won't ride my bike like that again. <laughs> I promise. Or, that wasn't a good way to speak to you. You know, I was frustrated. I promise I'll, I'll never speak like that again. Those sort of promises. We make promises we know we will never keep. And we call those resolutions. And so, I promise... I promise I won't eat like that. I promise I'll eat better. I promise I'll exercise more. I promise I'll spend less time in front of the screen. And we make those promises, but we know we're going to fall. And so when we really want people to trust our promises, we supersize them, don't we? That's what we do. Uh, we solemnly swear. We say things like, I know I haven't kept my word in the past. I've let you down. But this time I really mean it. I promise I won't do that again. Those sort of things. But when it gets really serious, we write our promises down. And we sign them, contracts between parties, financial promises, written down, signed, so that we can't back out of them, we can't say, well, I, don't un I didn't understand what I was saying. No, we understood, because we signed it, and we said we did. Uh, and some of these solemn contractual agreements we call covenants, like the covenant of marriage, or uh, covenants on a building contract, or a financial agreement on a loan contract. Now, part of the reason we make promises, part of the reason we supersize them and write them down and sign them is because we're not people who keep our word. We don't do what we say. And so for people to trust us, we make promises. That's, that's part of the reason we make them. God is a word-speaking, promise-making, covenant-making God. In chapter 9, we see the first lasting covenant that God explicitly makes with all of humanity. Why? Why does God make these promises, these covenants? What does it say about him? What do we learn about God who makes covenants like this? Uh, from Genesis 1, we've been introduced to the key player of the whole narrative of the Bible, and that person is God. We've, we've seen that God is the God of relationships. God is the God who creates and who provides, and last week, who judges and saves. Loving and powerful, good and just. In Genesis, we meet the true God of heaven and earth. And this week, we continue to meet God, get to know him, see what it means that he is a covenant-making God and what it means to trust him as his people who are recipients of his covenant. And Paul prays this for the church in Ephesus. And I want this to be our prayer too this afternoon. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious saver, may, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Isn't that a great prayer? For people made by such a God as the one we meet in the scriptures, there can be no greater thing to pray can, than that we would know God better. So why don't you pray with me as we are again struck by God in his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And Lord, we pray that you might give us all a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know you better appreciate you more, love you more, and serve you more too. Amen. So last week, we left Noah and his family and the, all the animals in the ark, didn't we? We left them there for a week. Uh, not quite as long as God did. Um, 
But they were spared, weren't they? They were in the ark, saved from the fury of God's judgment in the flood. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 7, we see the earth has, in one sense, been wound back in decreation. In judgment, God has poured out an act of decreation, bringing the world back so that it actually reflects the description of the world in Genesis 1 verse 2. Let me remind you, it said there that the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the surface of the deep. And at the end of chapter 7, that's where we stand again, back at that point. And then we hear these words, chapter 8 verse 1, but God remembered Noah. What does that mean, that God remembered Noah? Did God forget Noah? Is that what it means? That's what it normally means, isn't it? You know, did God get all caught up in his fury against sin, pouring out the, the flood and the rain upon the earth, and then he looks down and sees the ark and says, oh, that's right, I put that guy in the boat. I better do something about that. I better save him. That's not what this means. A number of times in the Bible we see words like this where God says he remembers. And every time it's about God remembering his covenant promise that's what it's about here's a couple of examples God's going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah from the face of the planet and then Genesis 19 verse 29 is going to come up on the screen there it is Uh, so when God destroyed the cities of the plain he remembered Abraham that is he remembered his promise to Abraham and so he saved Lot and when Israel was in Egypt, suffering under the rule of Pharaoh, determined, a Pharaoh determined to destroy them, then Exodus 2 verse 24, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. Can you see that God remembering is not about God forgetting and then thinking, oh, that's right. No, it's not like that. It's about God deciding to act on the basis of his promises. That's what it's about. He acts to save, not because they're worthy of being saved, but because he promised he would. And so God made a covenant with Noah back in chapter 6, verse 18, that he would spare them the judgment they deserved. And so God remembers that promise, that covenant, and he fulfilled it by saving them. So God shuts up the bores, the deep underground springs, he closes the clouds of the heavens, stops the rain, sends driving wind, brings out the sun, and the waters go down. As before, when God separated the waters to form dry ground, so again, God separates the waters and dry ground appears. God saves Noah, God saves his family and all the creatures and we get a new world, we get a new beginning. If you look at the timing in chapters 7 to 9, what you see is that Noah and his family and the menagerie of animals and birds in the ark were in the ark for one year and ten days. That's a long time in the ark, isn't it? You wouldn't want to get sick of each other, I'm sure they did at times. But God commands them, chapter 8, verse 16, as God spoke and created the world, so he speaks and they leave the ark. And here's the typical image of the flood of Noah and his family, leading those he has safely kept dry and alive and well-fed, entering this washed earth, this new beginning. But we need to remember, it's not Noah who's the saviour here, is it? It's God who has saved. God is saviour. He has made the waters recede. He has saved Noah and his family and the whole of creation. And as they come out of the ark, words that echo Genesis 1 and 2 are spoken by God. The animals are sent out upon the earth to be fruitful and increase in number in much the same way as God spoke to the animals. 
and said the same thing in Genesis 1 and 2. Mankind is given food to eat as he was, but this time we can eat meat, which is fantastic. Um, we're reminded again that mankind is created in God's image, as we were told in Genesis 1 and 2. We see it again in chapter 9. Yes, the image of God has been marred by sin, but it hasn't been lost. But you've got to ask, you know, with all these echoes of chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, do we have a new creation here? Is this a new beginning? A brave new world? Well, it is a new beginning, but it's not a new creation. It's actually creation take two. Because chapter 9 is littered with this ongoing problem of the horrors of sin. A flood has changed nothing about the world we live in. Chapter 9, verse 6, we read, have a look at it there, you can see it there in front of you. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. Now it's important to realise this verse is not, you know, commending revenge killing. That's not what this is about. These verses are written for God's people entering into God's land, living under God's rule with judges and a system of justice. That's the situation it's written into. That's what this is for. To take what this passage clearly shows us, that all human life, from the unborn to the very old, are all in the image of God, honoured. There's a sanctity of all human life made in God's image, and to take a life is profoundly evil and deserves to be punished. But it also shows us that in this fresh new world, murder is in mankind's future. That's what this is saying. Murder is in mankind's future. There'll be the utter violence of murder and the terrible necessity of difficult justice and punishment. That's what's coming. This fresh new world is one that will be profoundly marked by the horrors of sin, just like Genesis 3 to 6. It hasn't changed. And then we see the sinfulness of Noah and his family in the second half of chapter 9. We didn't read it. Uh, but I want us to notice, have a look at it. I want us to notice there's striking parallels between chapter 3 and chapter 9, verses 18 to 28. So just as God planted a garden in chapter 2, so Noah plants a garden. Notice that in verse 20. Just as Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the garden, so Noah drinks from the harvest of his vineyard in verse 21. After that eating and drinking, there comes sin. For Noah, it was the sin of drunkenness. And that sin leads to nakedness. Not the no-shame nakedness of chapter 2, no, but nakedness full of shame, just like chapter 3. And this sin leads to more sin and family breakdown and discord and lack of trust, with Ham failing to show his father the honour he is due. And then in response to that sin, in both chapter 3 and in chapter 9, there's a curse that lasts for generations upon generations. Can you see what's happening here? This is Genesis 3 all over again. Nothing's changed. So not only do we have a new beginning, a washed creation, we also have sin that echoes Adam and Eve's. The pattern of sin and judgment and curse continues. And that idea that nothing has changed is actually spelt out very clearly for us if we go back to chapter 8, verse 21. As Noah and his family and the animals leave the ark, God says this, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Words that echo what we read in Genesis chapter 6, if you remember. That mirror of God's word to the evil of human hearts that we looked at two weeks ago. That evil human heart that we were exposed to 
that we saw in ourselves in chapter 6 was the reason that God sent the flood on the earth in the first place. And yet we've come to the end of it all and nothing's changed. So why? Why the flood? What's the point if it didn't change anything? It's like having a destructive virus on your computer that uh, repeatedly causes it to free it up. You know, the infuriation of being partway through an assignment and and the computer just stops. And you get this, if you've got an apple, this apple wheel of death that just keeps on rolling and rolling and rolling. Or if you've got a PC, it's just that frozen screen, you can't get out of it. What do I do when that happens? Control, alt, delete, start again, restart, turn it off, whatever you need to do, and then restart again. But it doesn't fix it, does it? If you've got a virus on your computer, that isn't fixed up. It just freezes again and again and again. The flood is like God pressing control, alt, delete. The problem's still there. The core problem is still going on. The problem of sin and the judgment we deserve. So if that's the case, what's the point of the flood? The flood was never sent to change things. That's not the point. That's not why God did it. The flood was God's judgment on the evil of that generation of humans. But the biggest reason for the flood is actually to reveal God to us. That's the other thing it does. His character is revealed to us. Through these chapters of Genesis, from Genesis 1 uh, through to 9 so far, we meet God. We see God relate with fallen humanity. And as we do that, we see even more the character of God. If we just had Genesis 1 and 2, what we'd know about God? We would know that God is powerful. We We would know that God is relational, that God speaks and reveals. We would know that God is holy and good creates with order and power, glorious. We would know all those things about God, but once sin enters the scene, we see more of God's character. The facets of what he's like, we see him in even more of his glorious wonder. Last week, we saw him as judge and saviour together, hand in hand, can't separate those two things. This week, we see that God is a God of covenant promise. And that's what we're going to explore for the rest of our time together. In chapter 9, verses 8 to 17, the word covenant comes up eight times, eight times in ten verses. It's a big idea. He wants us to notice that. These verses are a massive moment in the unfolding plan of God. The whole of the Bible is punctuated with these key moments of covenants between mankind and God. And here is the first significant one where the word covenant is repeated. So what's a covenant? What does it say about God that he speaks and makes covenants with people? Well, a covenant is a solemn promise. It's a vow to act in a certain way. Now, it's important to note that unlike us, God doesn't need to make promises to establish that his words are trustworthy. God's words are always trustworthy. The God we've met in the opening chapters of Genesis is a God who speaks, who relates with words, who reveals himself by speaking to us. And his words are powerful and faithful and reliable and true. That's the God we've met. So if I say, let there be a six-lane tunnel from Lithgow to Penrith, you know what? Nothing had happened. If Gladys Berejiklian said, let there be a six-lane tunnel from Lithgow to Penrith, things would hopefully start to happen, hopefully. If God said, let there be a six-lane tunnel from Lithgow to Penrith, there would be a six-lane tunnel from Lithgow to Penrith. 
Because God's words are powerful and he does what he says. He doesn't need promises to make his words trustworthy. So why does God make promises? Why does he establish covenants? When God makes a covenant, he's underlining a promise. He's saying, this promise will shape everything I do. will shape my relationship with humanity from this point on. That's what a covenant is really saying. In this covenant, after the flood, God is saying, I will never again flood the earth. And that's a word he will keep. That will shape his relationship with us until the Lord returns. And as a sign, he hangs up a bow in the clouds. Many translations use the word rainbow. I'm not saying it's not a rainbow. I think it was a rainbow, and it is a rainbow. But the word is actually bow. You know, like a bow and arrow bow. Like a weapon. God hangs his weapon in the sky, if you want to put it like that. And the sign of that is the rainbow. Never again will he wield his weapon against humanity like that again. That's what he's saying. Until he decides to wind it all up when the earth as we know it will end. So what does this covenant reveal about God? This particular covenant? Well, it tells us that God is patient. That's one thing it tells us. This covenant with Noah is a promise to suspend judgment for a time and for a long time until he winds this place up. It's a promise to be patient with humanity, not to judge us as we deserve, despite the fact that we deserve his judgment because of the evil of our sin. After the flood, God hung his bow in the sky, promised to patiently wait, to bear with the offence of human evil, our rejection of him, our indifference of him, our willful ignorance of him. He said, I will leave judgment, that final judgment, until it comes on that day. What else does the covenant reveal about God? Who is God? God is a gracious God. That's what we see. It's important to remember that God did not establish this covenant because he felt like he made a mistake. That like he went overboard, he thought, wow, that was pretty insane. That flood, not going to do that one again. That was a bit over the top. That's not what he thought. His judgment was just. He didn't back away from it. We deserved it. His judgment was right and just. He gave life. We rejected it. We rejected him and he took that life away. God makes this covenant as an act of grace, not an act of regret. It's not because he saw how great Noah was, because as we see painfully by the end of the chapter, Noah was not that great. He didn't deserve this covenant. He just gave it as an act of grace. Whenever God makes a covenant with humanity, it's always in the context of sacrifice. And this covenant is no different. If you look at 8 verse 20, you see Moses, oh, sorry, Moses, Noah builds an altar, sacrifices some of the clean animals as a burnt offering. Now we get to hear more about burnt offerings in Leviticus, if you wanted to move forward to there, turn forward to there. But burnt offerings were offerings that were made to bring about atonement for forgiveness of sins. That's what they were. To cover the sin of the people. The animal died in the place of the Israelite because of the penalty for sin that that person deserved. God does not make this covenant with Noah, with all of humanity, because we're worthy, but an act of mercy. A relationship with God, since the sin and curse of Genesis 3, has to be done on the basis of blood sacrifice. Blood must be shed because the penalty for sin is death. We don't deserve a relationship with God. If it's going to be established, blood must be shed, and that's what happens. 
It's an act of mercy. We see God's mercy in this chapter. What else do we learn about God uh, from this covenant? Who is God? God is a faithful, covenant-keeping, word-keeping, promise-making God. That's what he is. Even though we are unworthy recipients of his words, his promise and his faithfulness. When God makes promises in his word, we look to see them being fulfilled, don't we? God promised to Noah, his family and the animals in the ark, that he would bring them through it, that he would save them, and he did kept his word. God promised never to flood the earth like that again and he's kept his promise so far and he will until this, this whole planet's wound up. His faithful covenant love is something we see unfold through the rest of the Old Testament in the face of the incessant un- uh, sinfulness of humanity. In the, faith, in the face of our unfaithfulness, we see God's faithfulness to his promises. Covenant is all about a relational God initiating, promising relationship with us. And all of the Old Testament covenants look forward to a greater covenant, a better covenant, because none of them deal completely with that problem of sin. The promises and covenants of God in the Old Testament only serve to highlight God's faithfulness. And so God's covenant with Abraham, we're going to see this in a few weeks' time, is with a deceiving, sinful, unworthy man whose lack of faith often threatens God's promises, but God keeps his promise to him. God's covenant at Sinai was with a rebellious, idol-worshipping, ungrateful nation, but he kept his promise. God's covenant with David was with an adulterating, murderous king who failed to raise his kids in the knowledge and love of the Lord, but God kept his promises. God is faithful. God's covenants are always with undeserving people whose sin gets in the road of him fulfilling those promises. That's what we see again and again in the Old Testament. And so we need a better covenant that's going to deal with this problem of sin. Well, guess what? God promises that's exactly what he's going to do. This passage from Jeremiah chapter 31 promises this new covenant. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. What's the problem with the covenant, in, in, with the old covenant in this passage? It's not the covenant, it's us. It's our sin. We're the problem. For there to be a better covenant, it needs to deal with this problem of sin. And later on in Jeremiah 31, it talks about that's exactly what's going to happen. He says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more, he says. God's going to bring a solution to sin with a new and better covenant. And it's not going to surprise you. The Sunday school answer is right. Jesus is going to bring this new covenant. That's what he did. Every covenant that God establishes is a promise that changes the way that God deals with his people. It's an unfolding of God's plans and purposes, and Jesus is the final covenant. In him, we have a covenant that deals with the problem of sin once for all. I want you to turn with me. These, these passages won't come up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 8. It sounds like it's in the Old Testament, but it's not. It's in the New. Hebrews chapter 8. So Hebrews is fairly late in the New Testament. Uh, So you can go to Revelation and turn left and you'll get there eventually. Um, If you get to the T's, it's just after all the T's. So uh, Timothy and Thessalonians and Titus. Then you get to Hebrews and then we're looking at chapter 8. I'm going to read from verse 6. Now this is going to be talking about a new covenant and contrasting it with the old covenant. The old covenant it's speaking about is the Sinai covenant. So it's good to know that. I'm going to read from verses 6 to 8 of Hebrews chapter 8. 
But the ministry of Jesus, I'm oh, sorry, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. There you see that same idea we saw in Jeremiah. The problem with the old covenants was the people, our sin. That's got to be solved. And so then he quotes Jeremiah, which we just read before. Flick down to chapter 9, verse 12, as he continues to compare the old covenant with the new one in Jesus. 9, verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we might serve the living God? There we see sacrifice again. God establishes a covenant through sacrifice. The sacrifice here is the death of Christ on our behalf. His blood shed for us. That actually does make us right and does bring forgiveness of sins that lasts. This is the sacrifice that changes everything. This is the covenant that changes everything, that deals with the problem of sin properly. When God established his covenant with all of mankind in Genesis 9, he put his bow in the clouds, didn't he? To say, I will not pour out my judgment like that again. Well, with Jesus, he takes that bow and he spends his fury on his son in our place. At the cross, Jesus takes on all the anger of God at our sin and bears it within himself. That's this new covenant. That deals with our sin once for all. I've used this illustration before, but I want to use it again. Where's the safest place to be in the face of an oncoming, oncoming fire? The safest place to be is on burnt ground, where the fire has already been. Because it's already burnt there. It's not going to burn there again. If you stand on that ground that's already burnt by the fire, the fire's got nothing left to burn, you are safe. Jesus is that burnt ground. The judgment has already fallen in, on him in your place, spent on him instead of us. And to, so to stand in Jesus, accept his death on our behalf, as Ed said last week, that means our judgment is behind us, not in front of us. It's a wonderful and powerful and amazing thing. Jesus establishes a new covenant in his blood. And this is God's final covenant with humanity. In Jesus, we see even more clearly the, the facets of God's character that we saw Revealed in Genesis 8 and 9, God's patience in the face of our sin, forbearing our sin again and again and again for hundreds, thousands of years until he spent it in his son. God's faithfulness to his promises, a great cost to himself. God's uncompromising justice, the penalty for sin must be paid for. His grace. In the account of the flood, there's the promise of God that he will never pour out his fury in that way again, as long as the earth endures. But in that promise, there's another promise. There's a promise that this world, as we know it, will end. 2 Peter 3 picks up on this implicit promise of the flood, 
and drives it home for us. Peter warns of people who will say that this world will just keep on going and judgment will never come. And this is what he says. He says, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being. And the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Here's the other promise of Genesis 6 to 9. It's the promise that judgment is still coming. God's patience with humanity runs out. God will not put up with sin forever. He will pour it out. Yes, God is patient, a God who is covenant and faithful. He keeps his promises, and in the flood, there's a promise of final judgment as well. And we need to heed it. This world, as we know it, will end. Genesis 8 to 9, we saw a new beginning, but it wasn't a new creation. God's promised a new creation, where everything will be put right. That on that final day, the new creation, the new heavens and earth will burst in and this earth as we know it will end and judgment day will come, just as it did for that generation. And if you haven't accepted Jesus, don't think that God's patience will last forever. It won't last forever. He sent his son, established a new and wonderful covenant. He's a wonderful God and to be in eternal relationship with him is what we were made for. He sent his son to die to make it possible for you to be in relationship with him forever. Find refuge in Jesus now and come to know the God who made you, who is your judge. Do it before his patience runs out, because it will. For those of us who do trust in Jesus, who know God in Christ, uh, we're party to a, a wonderful covenant with the living God who made us. We are unworthy recipients of God's grace and covenant forgiven by the sacrifice which enables us to be God's forgiven people, children of the living God. We are recipients of mercy. All who enter into covenant relationship with God are recipients of mercy. We're undeserving. We've been cleansed by the blood of Christ that we might serve the living God. He's a wonderful God worthy of our whole life. In Jesus, we're able to serve God in a new and living way as recipients of mercy, confident in sins forgiven, knowing that in Christ we're able to enter into God's presence, into the presence of the living God, knowing that he has made us his co-workers. He's in this broken world that so desperately needs to know their patient, faithful God. We've been reminded again of the, the wonder of the God that we know. That's what we've been seeing. That's what we've met in Genesis 1-9. to And a reminder that we are in covenant relationship with him. Let that truth, let that wonder drive you and spur you in your service of him. Live holy and godly lives as you wait for that day. When the new creation will burst in and your covenant relationship with the living God will have been brought to its eternal fulfilment. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for what you have done. We want to thank you that you're a God who speaks, who enters into covenant relationship with your people. We thank you that you're a God who keeps your promises. We thank you that you're a God who is patient and merciful. We thank you that you are a God who is just. Lord, we pray that you would help us to honour you as our God. Thank you that in Jesus we have a lasting covenant and relationship with you in spite of our sin. 
where sins have been forgiven once and for all. Father, help us as your covenant people to live for you, to serve you. And Father, we pray that you would help us to speak this wonderful word, that people would come to know you before your patience runs out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.